The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Return the Jewels. Also, there's explicit language. Hey everyone, welcome to the 20th episode of Return the Jewels. That's right, 20 episodes. That's why this one is very special. And I know that's the 20th time I've said that the episode is very special, but this one is very special. I uh, So a couple of episodes I told you I had my friend on, Dr. Deer. She, uh, you know, the lung, lung doctor, ICU doctor, friend from Millsaps, my college years. This week, today, this episode, right now that you're watching or listening, I have my good friend Madhav Saxena on, also from the Millsaps here. It's the other guy, the other brown guy that was in my class. It was just me and him. And, um, you know, we formed a lifelong friendship. And you can, you know, you can get more context in the interview. We'll get to it. Um, but this was a really good one. Uh, we talked about a lot of things. Madhav works in a digital ad agency. He makes websites. So he's kind of on the other side of the creative things, the creative business side of things. So, um, you know, his insight on a lot of these issues is uh, is worth checking out. And so, you know, today we talked about some cool stuff, um, code switching, gully rap, which is like, uh, that was the appropriation or appreciation segment. Um, you know, with digital advertising, internet privacy, that kind of stuff. We talked about that movie, The White Tiger. Uh, you know, if you see our faces in the thumbnails and are thinking that we're probably, maybe that these guys will talk about the movie. You are correct. We talked about the movie, White Tiger. We talked about, um, well, we talked about the farmers' protests and what is like the underlying, uh, underlying thought processes, thought processes that go into different sides of that and, you know, what's really going on, uh, or at least how we see what's really going on. And, you know, just kind of other stuff really caught up. Uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, it's a good episode. It's a long one. You'll like it. Uh, enjoy. Farmers. Process. So wait, wait. Mina Harris is mm-hmm. her niece. Okay, I followed her on Instagram like right after I guess the election. Mm-hmm. She's popping up in the thing. I thought she was like her sister, but okay, she's her niece. Is she like just a personality for being her niece, or is she like in her own right, uh, like a person? Well, I mean, yeah. I'm not sure. I think she's in, I don't know why I'm thinking this, but I think she's in like grad school or law school or something like that. I could be completely oh, wrong. Okay. Um, oh, but so I guess yeah. at this point, mostly, yeah, probably from yeah, being. She probably, right, yeah. I mean, her niece. Um, she's probably getting all the uh, all the fun debt threats and rape threats from the Namas right now, though. Yeah, yeah, no, no. no. So, um, yeah, she is. I saw a post about. Like they're burning effigies of her with that girl Greta Thun- Thunberg, yeah. Who's the? Uh, she's like the 
16, 17 year old sweet Norwegian climate activist. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, her and Mina Harris and Rihanna spoke yeah. out about. I, w- I wouldn't say they spoke out really. Dude, that's the funny part. They right? just, like, they're like, hey, why are people talking about this? And then now they're burning effigies of them. And somebody called her, uh, what was it? So there's this comedian, her name is Zubi uh, Ahmad. She had like a TikTok that was really funny where she uh, she's like, she played a Bollywood actress. She's like, oh my God, Rihanna, why'd you do this, you terrorist porn singer? <laughs> uh, by the way, I pressed record a little while ago. Uh, we, we were just getting into the farmers' protest stuff, but uh, we're going to talk about that later in this interview because... Um, and I do want to get into that, but uh, people are probably wondering who you are. I mean, the two people that do watch, actually, they probably already know who you are. And they're like, oh, whoa, it's Madhav. Look at that. I haven't seen him in, in forever. Wow. Look at that. But um, maybe I should reach out to him. Uh, but good to good to see you, two people that do watch. Uh, I will know you will reveal yourselves to me soon. Because I can see the metrics, but <laughs> uh, my friend, my really good friend for what, like 15, 15, 16, 15, yeah, 16 years there. now. Yeah. Um, Madhav Saxena. Did I say that right? You did. You did. I did. Okay, great. Okay. Cause I know, you know, that, uh, I ask in every every episode whether or not i say it right because sometimes depending on how dark you are sometimes you anglicize your name to make it more palatable it's just another either self-defense technique adaptation technique maybe it's a first generation thing maybe it's just like a being in america thing maybe they do that in england too but you anglicize your name to make it more palatable so i know you personally in like you know in college we were roommates we were first roommates in college well there's a situation there's a situation (laughs) but uh i know that you personally have had your name pronounced all sorts of weird ways in our little uh white haven liberal tiny well not really liberal but tiny little white pocket of yes i don't correct uh i think when i was like so i came here like and immediately I was put into kindergarten once my when my family came here. You were not born in the U.S. I was not. No. Okay. But so like immediately, you know, within a week or two of arrival, thrown into kindergarten, and I just let it. Uh, so I think probably like the first teacher was like, "All right, Matt um, Madhav Saxena," mm. and I just let that stick. That's how it is today pretty much even like i think you didn't have that fire burning inside of you it's like no it's mother no, <laughs> no absolutely not and no, i still really don't no yeah. <laughs> and i still really don't i don't know if it's the fact that i've just gotten used to it so that the butchered version is just kind of my name now or i think part of it also is just i'm lazy like if i fuck with you hard i'll eventually correct you if you're saying it wrong but like if I just meet somebody, I'm like, yeah, whatever. However you want to say it, essentially. Are you? Is it just you just don't want to be confrontational? I mean, surely it's got to make you feel a certain way. Somebody says it wrong? Yeah. No, 
No. Because why would they? Why would they know how to correctly say it? Honestly, I mean. I mean, do you think that somebody saying it would want to know they're saying it right? What if I'm like, oh, Medhav, hey, Medhav, and then I know you for years, and I tell, oh, that's my friend Medhav, that's Medhav. Yeah, yeah look, uh, it's right there in the name. Okay, Medhav. so I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll go further with this. So, so somebody will be like. So if somebody pronounces it wrong, right, they'll often ask, like, wait, did I say that right? Like, probably like 80% of the time, they will ask, did I say that right? And I will just say yes. Okay, what's a character trait personality that distinguishes that 80% from that 20%? I think, I don't know, I've never thought about it as character trait. I will, what I've found with that is that, um, it's been more so in the last four or five years where that's kind of become a thing for me, where people give a shit or, or want to show that they give a shit, I don't know, enough to to care. So all I know is that it's been sort of a more recent thing. Okay, but aside from character trait, does that... Oh, I'll give you this, actually. Uh, probably last five, ten years... I would say I'm surrounded mostly by more wokeish people. Okay. So so skewing very liberal and kind of meaning you could ask good. more whether or not you say it right. Or they Yeah. So 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 either they care or they want to look they want it to look like they care. I don't know. They want it to look like they care. So Whereas, you think that okay, fine. Political lines, yes. What about age? race and sex lines is that there's any difference found, i don't think i found that or i've noticed that yeah i don't think old people would care i don't know but Matt have mother mm-hmm. Sixena. we were you were my first roommate i actually had to uh request for a change of roommates and your roommate actually left the college we both went to the college in jackson mississippi your roommate left because of katrina this was 2005 fall so you had a vacancy in that room yeah and i took it because uh i walked in on my roommate one time um in a very weird uh situation so i i got a roommate request change and uh, then we were the first roommates, and we were we were the only well, we weren't the only two. Were the only two Indian, South Asian guys in our class? In our I class? Think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And that kind of became like a weird identity thing when we were eighteen. Well, it was so we were the two guys, and then were there two girls? I remember. I, I two mean, Leka and Neha. I I don't know. Yeah, that's what I remember. I can't remember there being other like. I feel like that was a small. Uh, yeah, just I in our like class alone. I actually yeah. had Leka on um, this podcast. She's a um, she's a professor of medicine and a critical care, pulmonary care uh, doctor. Meaning she was like been running the ICUs and stuff during all oh, the COVID, so and it's a. Uh, you got the what do you say the first hand view or first hand knowledge of all of that? Yeah. Yeah, and dynamic. Um, she's three, so I gotta have Neha on here at some. She's point. also a doctor of some sort, right? 
I don't know her specialty. I, 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 yes, yes, she is, but I don't, yeah, I don't know her specialty either. And, uh, I mean, we wouldn't have to talk about COVID, I guess, but like the extent to which she's had to, you know, deal with this pandemic and all. Uh, I am starting to see, actually, quick tangent on this topic about like the unseen drama and all the stuff that healthcare workers and everyone are going through because of the pandemic, not only uh, seeing so much death, mortality, and like mm-hmm. unpredictability of a thing you don't know, but also like it's compounded by the fact that people are denying the thing's existence and leading these movements to anti-mask oh, and all of that stuff. And so it's like, I mean, if you're a healthcare worker or a doctor and you're thinking like, I have to preserve the health and improve the health of these people that don't even want my existence to think I'm some, you know, plant or hoax. But I, you know, it's so it's like the trauma of that. And it's like they're really making the problem worse. And it's like people's reckless behavior. But it's like how jaded would healthcare workers have to have become now in treating like how how shredded has bedside manner probably become because of this pandemic you know Mm -hmm. what are the family lives look like of these healthcare workers how are they treating their children how are they treating their spouses you know what like these are war veterans But anyways, tan- quick tangent, I've been seeing a couple more like political cartoons and stuff like that depicting that side of this whole issue. Right. But, um, you know, I don't know how big of a conversation it'll really be because, I mean, I feel like we're doing a lot of scrambling now. And, you know, people like to make the joke about whatever, about 2020 being a dud year, all this stuff and this year. But, but like, I feel like now we are doing a lot of scrambling to unpack a lot of the last few years and, you know, figure out where all the damage is. Um, I'm re-recording this on Sunday, the 7th, and this will come out uh, on Wednesday, the 10th. So hopefully what I'm saying now doesn't have like a radical shift in the whole world (laughs) in the next four days. Right. Or three days. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Okay. That took forever, and I've just been filibustering. So, Madhav, Madhav, my first roommate, real technically, uh, we established kind of like a South Asian collective identity or whatever. I talked to Leka in the last episode. We The thing about Millsaps and Masala, trying to bring the culture or whatever, but we were 18-year-old kids. You, an immigrant, lived the culture, brought the culture, adapted to the American culture coming through, going through like high school, middle school, all that stuff in New Orleans and Houston or just Uh, growing up is only New Orleans. It's only New Orleans. Okay. So growing up, you grew up in New Orleans coming from Hyderabad. Uh, Not quite. No, Uh, we came from Allahabad in UP. In UP. Um, My mom's side is from there. So, so as an adult and still growing up, I've spent a lot of time in Hyderabad, but uh, yeah, but I was born and technically lived in, in Allahabad. So I'm not saying it right. What? He- Hyderabad? Hyderabad, Hyderabad. Hyderabad. What What did they say it like? 
Well, so it's named after Heather. And so that would be, in that sense, it would be Hyderabad. Okay, so what, but, is, what is Heather? I, I huh? What is Heather? The, the Mughal emperor, I think, at some point. Okay. Or, or not, not Mughal, um, but the, the kingdom of Hyderabad. I don't know. History is probably off there, but but after some, but very we are okay. Let emperor. me just take this moment then to just say we're in season two of Return the Jewels. Uh, this has just been kind of a like getting ourselves together kind of thing, but our history and research will be more on point <laughs> <laughs> going forward. I will read more scholarly things and I will link them. And I will use my critical thinking to evaluate more primary sources and less hearsay. We followed the best evidence rule here. Or we will. We strive to. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, we go, we go to Millsaps. That's, a, that's the uh, small liberal arts college we went to in Mississippi. We're friends. You know, we both have to navigate being these white spaces. And that kind of um, informs and conforms our identity. So, mm. you know, when we talk about this stuff, like one thing I wanted to talk to you about a lot or want to talk to you about a lot was, you know, about our, um, and I feel like it's natural, the ability to code switch and whether or not it's an ability or whether or not it's innate and subconscious, you know, so... We'll talk about that, but let's uh, let's get into what you do. So, what do you do? Uh, I'm a web developer at a digital marketing agency. Mm -hmm. So, I sit in a corner and pump out websites for landscapers and other pest control people, and then I hand it off to my coworkers, and then they come up with ad campaigns and stuff like that to uh, get more business for those clients. So basically some of the most important work currently happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and you must've seen a boom. No, I mean like, yeah, that sounded sarcastic, but uh, it was, I wasn't really being sarcastic because like literally every industry needs that kind of face and, that sort of marketing and that sort of arm. So I mean, mm -hmm. if your if your firm is like actively doing that for people, empowering people, and you're benefiting off that, you must be learning a very valuable skill. Yeah, um, I'm definitely in meetings. So not my department directly, but I'm definitely in meetings with the people who are doing that kind of stuff. And so I, uh, I definitely learn a lot and I listen closely um, to that. And it's weird, like COVID has been like, it has actually been a boom for a lot of. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, that, like, everyone has to move into a remote working space or the ability to work remotely and have some sort of like virtual presence. Yeah. And so like, I guess, you know, as was everybody like back in March, you know, everybody was like, oh, shit my business is going to go under we like so much uncertainty right like nobody knew what was yeah. going to happen but like i think at least us like came out at uh, on this at least this far into it like we're probably actually like better off than we were in march of 
or February of 2020 in terms of the business and, and clients and stuff like that. Um, that's weird. But then it's also like really weird because I guess I do this stuff, but I hate not, not even just the stuff that I do, but like I, I'm violently like anti-tracking and, and, anti, oh. and like so super pro privacy so yeah. like at times when I am in these meetings where they're talking about like, you know, the advertising, the digital advertising part of it, I'm just like, so I'm listening because I, I I do want to like uh, learn this stuff and, and like, you know, be able to try it out on, on like my own ventures or like my friends ventures and stuff like that. But also like in the back of my mind, I'm fuming like this, this, we shouldn't have the ability to track people this granularly, you know, we shouldn't like. And now you have this stuff in the news, like with the the whole Facebook Apple controversy or or battle right now, with regards to privacy. What is the controversy? Um. So right now, like if you have the Facebook app on your iPhone, mm-hmm. um, Facebook can can track things like outside of the Facebook app. So oh, if okay. you're if you're in um, Safari, like looking at shoes or something, like if that if that shoe merchant has a Facebook pixel tracking code on their website, it's all that information, all that stuff is being tracked and it's, it's feeding into Facebook and then they can do with their advertising algorithms, you know, people can target you in all kinds of different ways and stuff. So Apple is making that, it's gonna have to be opt-in now. So like, one day you're going to open up the Facebook app and there's going to be an Apple pop-up that says like, you need to opt into this tracking. Um, whereas now it's just by default. If you get the Facebook app, basically right. like you're going to be <clears throat> tracked. And so Facebook is like putting these like um, one page, full page, like ads in um, the wall street journal and New York times and stuff like talking about how this is going to be a death knell for small businesses and shit like stuff like that. And Apple's like, Nope privacy no so apple is the champion for personal privacy in terms of mainstream specific tech company yeah in terms of mainstream tech companies right now that they kind of are yeah okay this is a this is a really interesting um topic just because the balance i don't think has been found not that i'm prescribing a balance or know of a balance but Mm -hmm. um the thought of like individual privacy and what is privacy because right it's only intuitive for any sort of company or marketing company to try to get the most and diversified metrics they can right, right? that that uh, influencer selling and whatever because every organization operates with the rational actor model which is to Revenue, increase profits, right? Have more profits than spe- expenditures, right? More profits than losses. And that's the most rational thing. So, you know, you're going to cut long-term view, like in most executives' minds or whatever, you cut long-term gratification or long-term R&D or whatever in terms of short-term gain. There's a lot of like, that's why there's all sorts of, you know, mechanisms or whatever to get short-term gain and sort of things like that so of course you would try to attract everybody and Mm -hmm. then you know then that leads to the argument that yeah yeah these are just 
these are just dispassionate data points. So they're just dispassionate data points. They inform better selling. So if you're targeted an ad, it's really something that you would want and you're looking for. So there's a benefit to it because we live in a smarter society that's mm -hmm. able to uh, give us the things we want. But then the problem is that we create these fra fractured echo chambers that confirm all of, or there's a bias confirmation, collective bias confirmation in these fractured echo chambers. And then the fact that these algorithms can target people in such a micro way or micro target them in such a specific way, a surgical way and create these little echo chambers, they can exacerbate that effect and create more rifts between the chambers so that you can funnel specific type of, you know, whatever product or or thing that you're selling into those little chambers. Right. Isn't that yeah. what it wouldn't that be the isn't that essentially the goal of this kind of thing? Like like do the metrics support this theory that uh the data collection is really the the most intuitive use of the data collection is the same thing that has kind of broken our disposition. Yeah, and I think both things tie into just how granular things have gotten, right? Because so okay, so so what do you 20... mean by the word granular? First of all, okay, so I I've sat what in you meetings mean? granular. I'll give an example. So I've sat in meetings where there have been discussions of how do we exclude Indian people from receiving these ads? How do we get a better bang for our buck on our uh, return on our investment by not showing ads to you know recent arrival immigrants on Facebook? I've sat in meetings where that has been discussed and people have tried to find ways. And so then somebody says, what if we exclude people whose interests are cricket? What if we exclude people whose interests are Bollywood? Like I've sat in those fucking meetings, man. Like, okay. Okay. But those are also two kind of good suggestions. <laughs> but should that be an option? Like, just... okay. Ugh. Should it be an option? I don't know because, okay. Like, we have a bill of rights. So private businesses, even though they're private, still can't refuse service based off of any sort of discrimination, right? They can, um, well, maybe not now. I mean, I guess they can, the whole whatever, but like they can't discriminate to refuse service mm -hmm. or stop service based off of like class discrimination or whatever. So would it be discrimination though target specific people if that's like so like okay let's talk about return the jewels right i don't necessarily know the demographic for this show i would imagine it's probably people that look exactly like me <laughs> 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 but um i have no clue i really don't i really don't know so right. if i were to find that you know if i were to like make figure out this advertising thing Mm -hmm. make targeted ads it would be in my interest to be like well i want to exclude people that storm the capital <laughs> you know because i really don't think they would jive with the kind of things that i'm saying or do i want to target them because they will really hate the things that i'm saying i would uh, i don't think i i would actually go with the latter yeah 
because that's i mean that's how like for the youtube stuff like videos that i've seen that like from channels that have millions of subscribers like it seems like you haven't made it unless like five people are threatening to kill you in the comments so really it's death threats will really give me a life yeah that i want or, or in the developing world rape threats those i've seen quite a few of those as well rape threat i don't think i've death ever had a rape, rape threat no well i, I would say it's something that mostly falls to, to women yeah given the, the dynamics of of that but um yeah well, i mean it's part of okay so that's actually another thing it's like you know i think i don't know if it's like part of toxic masculinity or whatever we're like um there there we still love as the butt of a joke or a punchline the implication of uh uh man on man rape in prison right so anybody does something bad or or maybe they're accused of doing something bad there's always a contingent of people reacting to the story that will be like don't drop the soap yeah or whatever okay. it's the implicate and though there's the punchline it's in the implication of rape and it's like that's funny though because it washes out and it's like it becomes one of those things where it's like is that kind of trivialization in itself toxic and seeping out into our general rhetoric that makes the fact that it's like oh yeah you know a lot of like comedians are saying oh it's cancel culture we can't joke about this but it really the other side of the conversation it's like well you know how insensitive is it and should you be criticized for being insensitive? Should you not be criticized for being insensitive? Can you not handle the criticism for being insensitive? Are you too insensitive? Are you too sensitive to handle your criticism of being insensitive? Like, yeah, I agree. So as somebody that's, I've certainly laughed at a lot of those kinds of jokes in the past. I've probably made them even. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this point, it is wrong. And I think it does completely tie into toxic masculinity. So that's one of those things I don't do. I do find though. So with a lot of these jokes and, and like every, a lot of times when a comedian or other entertainer um, ends up saying something and then, and then people start pushing for cancellation or, or that kind of thing. Do you find that like just a lot of the time, the jokes in question or like the statements in question are just like, lazy and not funny like they're just yeah. not even good jokes like at this yeah. point like when sure. chris rock was making prison man sex jokes in like 94 or 95 that was kind of hilarious but now in 2020 every other comedian makes the same fucking jokes and it's just like uh, just kind of a lazy joke at this point i don't know again i mean i would agree like i mean um I there's that whole aspect of and you know there's okay so even talking about short talking about comedians but even entertainers right or influencers right there's that whole aspect of like but I can get away with saying the n-word I am justified in doing it right I can get away with saying a rape joke I am justified in doing it my point of view is so unique and my words are so important that 
I can do this insensitive thing and get away with it. It doesn't matter that I'll trivialize other people's experiences because I haven't experienced it myself. Shit, you know, I've had wounds, physical wounds, so I'm sure it's the same as an emotional wound. You know what I mean? So mm. I can get away with it. Like, there's always that there's always that sense it's like because I can't get because you're saying I can't get away with it, you are limiting my free speech. And that is just PC culture, cancel culture. Uh uh, because PC stands for people cancel, and that's PC <laughs> cancel culture and the uh, the C and the PC stands for cup and cancel and it's a cancel culture and I'm being canceled because I can't say this thing. But really is it like I can't really think of a good reason why I should say this thing? Mm. I mean, how is that never yeah. part of the conversation? Is it like we're not allowed to say that part of the conversation? <laughs> Funny tidbit, I just saw this morning. Did you see that thing about that country singer who yeah. was like on camera? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but apparently Gowan like, something Morgan. I didn't even tell I'm you. But like so apparently he lost a bunch of deals and got suspended from a bunch of deals. And then his streams are way down. Well, but his sales are way up. Yeah, his sales are way up. Because he got his support. Because now he reminds he reminds his singers of themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, that guy's uh, authentically like us. He wasn't just cosplaying. He says the N-word all the time. <laughs> He's not one of those liberal elites who's sensitive to people's feelings. He I says the N-word it. just like us. In close- he says the N-word behind closed doors just like us all the time. He, oh, look at him casually dehumanizing races. That's just like we do. <laughs> let's go phrase? eat our lizard food. <laughs> What's that phrase? Is it like voting with your wallet? Or there's something like that, right? Or like or vote with your wallets. Vote, not vote with your, your, so I vote guess with your wallet, not like, with your heart or something. I don't know. Oh. But so I guess, I don't know, maybe a big subset of the population is like watching him get canceled and they're like, no, nah, we're going to. We're going to go to Walmart and buy up all of his CDs and support him. I don't know. Did you see that thing about how uh, naked mole rats are racist and xenophobic? There's all these different uh, uh, specific geographic regions of naked mole rats. Uh, and um, they're they're like xenophobic and racist towards other naked mole rats. Are you serious? No, I yeah. haven't seen this. No, like for real. Oh. That's a whole thing. And it's like... Um, they all have white skin. No, I'm just, wow. I shouldn't have said that. That's fucked up. That's fucked up. No, no, but but oh, like, <laughs> no, no. I'm not. I just that was a fucked up thing to say. But what I meant to say was all naked roll mat, roll mats, all naked mole rats look like uh, my friend Brian's grandmother. No, that was, fucked up. that was fucked up. I don't even have a friend named Brian. Um, but I'm sure there's a naked mole rat somewhere that looks like someone's grandmother and triggers some sort of nostalgic story to people. Uh, but yeah, naked no naked mole rats are racist. And um, I don't know where I was going with that. I was really just trying to make the white skin joke, and like I realized how like messed up it was. Uh, but you know we haven't really even gotten into the whole thing and maybe i should cut that out but it's mm-hmm. uh, 
it's kind of funny that like every aspect of that was was completely believable though even the punchline here oh no i didn't make up the naked mole red thing no i know totally racist yeah but like no part of me was like he's bullshitting like even with the the punchline right (laughs) no it's a little fucked up oh man okay so let's talk about code switching (laughs) speaking of (laughs) speaking of naked mole rats and being racist and whatever Let's talk about code switching. So we were kind of talking about this yesterday in a personal conversation that's not going to be published. Um, but code switching is something that comes naturally to me or to you. My code switching is when I'm around my parents or uh, cousins or whoever, I actually speak a different way. Kind of, maybe how I'm speaking right now to you. I don't really know. But all I know is that I was aware of it when a friend from the outside, like school or whatever, when I was a kid, was hearing me on the phone with my parents and was like, hey, you, you talk kind of Indian. I didn't know you speak like that. And I never, I've actually never been aware of it. Uh, but I code switch back and forth. Now, for you, I'm sure it's slightly different in that, um, well, you came here like four or five, so you already speak a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so you have to adapt to the American accent. Not not that I'm saying you haven't adapted. I think you've adapted very well. But you adapt to the American accent. So the code that you're switching to is different. Yeah. Is it so, an active um, thing? What? Is it an active thing? I think at this point, no. No. I think like it was uh, probably the first couple of years. But yeah. now it's, yeah, it's completely natural. And, and so I think mine is, is similar to yours. So like, I've gotten the same thing. Like if I'm talking to my parents on the phone around um, like American friends, they're like, oh, bro, you're talking Indian real hard there. <laughs> uh, like I, I've certainly gotten those comments, but um, it, it's also just like uh, accents in general for me, right? So like if, if I talk to my parents, I'll talk in a, normal normal indian english accent but what's interesting or what i've realized is that i kind of do with everybody so like if i'm talking to like a recent chinese immigrant and like they don't have an american accent right Mm -hmm. so i will revert back to my normal sort of more neutral indian english accent and it goes like that so my like my thing is basically it just kicks in and out based on whom whom i'm talking to and so I go back into the Indian thing, talking to anybody without an American accent, basically. Okay. So maybe this is how we illuminate the difference I'm trying to get at, right? Mm. Or the distinction I'm trying to get to. Not necessarily the distinction between you and me, but a distinction that exists in the realm of code switching. You, let's say, another, you're talking to another immigrant, a newer, new immigrant, right? So you kind of revert back into that mode of speaking that's kind of like English, you know, slower words pronounced Mm -hmm. with a little bit of an ethnic twang on them. You revert back into that to be palatable. Not necessarily palatable, maybe to be comforting, right? To be comforting, to be understood, to be deliberate, to be precise. Mm -hmm. Now... A white dude speaking like, you know, trying to do like uh, a different ethnicity's affect, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like what if a white dude came to us and 
tried to speak kind of in an Indian accent. Would right. that? Do you think that would be with the intention to be comforting and palatable? Or do you think it'd be like, I mean, not necessarily. I'm sure it's case by case, right? But let's say you get that, right? So how is that perceived? Is that perceived? I would perceive it as patronizing, but like... it, uh, it I get annoyed by it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I've seen like even, even in, in my family, like when... Um, aunts and cousins and stuff have married um uh, uh, american guys and or american people like they're american spouses so i don't know i mean it could e easily be that they just like you know hanging out with indians like picked up certain things but they will like they will say certain words with like a very hard like simpsons-esque like accent like that kind of kicks in at times. Oh, they're doing they're doing Hank Azaria doing Hank Azaria doing Peter Sellers. Yeah, but but so and, and the way that the nuance is it like so it won't be like they they won't say like a whole sentence right, but like the the final word in the sentence will have like a Namas sort of an Indian like punctuation kind of like the, just that the the way they say that last word, and um and so like yeah when I'm there, it, it annoys me. I don't know their intentions, and I'm sure they're not bad. Yeah, they probably aren't bad. They probably aren't bad intentions. I wonder if it's subconscious. It might be. That's the thing. Yeah, like, like, I mean, they are like, you know, hanging out with, you know, my relative, like my aunt. Like, so if it's we're getting, if I give an example of like my aunt who's Indian and then uncle who's American, like, I mean, he is like hanging out with my aunt like all day and all the whole time. So I mean, it, it's natural that maybe he would just randomly pick up some things or maybe they're doing it out of their own insecurity like to kind of fit in when they're mm -hmm. like the one white guy white person around like a whole you know at some sort of like big family event where there's like 45 indians and there's like this one <laughs> that's intimidating for me as a, not, yeah. as a brown guy so i mean it annoys i don't well, it's get not intimidating. it's more annoying than intimidating yeah so because of like the uncertainty like thinking about all that like, it's not something I, I get angry about or anything like that, but I, I do, and I don't want to be annoyed by it. Like, sometimes I'm like, yeah. why am I so annoyed by this? But but I do. But you it. don't get annoyed when they call you Matt Have. No, I don't, actually. You're right. <laughs> oh, I man, I was kind of hoping, I was kind of hoping that'd be like a gotcha. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think I was. No, uh, another thing about the code switching stuff. Um, so there, I think there's another aspect of it, right? Getting called Matt has shit like that, right? Getting mm -hmm. other eyes. Oh man, you smell like curry, or whatever. I'm sure. I'm. We've heard all of it, right? Mm -hmm. All of that. I'm sure there's an aspect of it where it's like I have to speak with a particular cadence to be perceived in a particular way, and this is probably as a young person how I will develop my self-defense mechanisms, right? My adaptation mechanisms. For me specifically, uh, growing up, fat dude, all that stuff, right? Well, I saw studies uh, recently, and I actually talked about this on episode 16, I think, with Ramon about how it, when you're like brown and a little overweight or you're Asian and overweight, in America, you uh, actually are seen as more amenable 
and people see you uh, with less with xenophobic filter is turned down a little bit, and how as as terms of how you're perceived uh, because you're over. so that coupled with my maybe subconscious maybe conscious switch, I know it was definitely conscious maybe around like eighth ninth grade where I kind of talked with a little bit of a surfer accent more California accent drawing out things for one to hide the Mississippi draw mm-hmm. uh, and to, to kind of imply that, uh, you know, I'm more uh, world worldly uh, and that, you know, this is my way of preemptively trying to preserve or capture the benefit of the doubt I can potentially receive growing up. You know, I'm going to shred that benefit of the doubt with my Southern accent. I'll <laughs> potentially gain that benefit of the doubt by having that like, wavy wavy kind of drawled out california-ish accent and uh what really ended up happening was i ended up having more of a pacific northwest accent which is adopted from a lot of tv media consumption sitcoms all that stuff Mm -hmm. so like what was yours growing up small kid what is the accent you, this little little brown kid, has to emulate to try to adapt and fit in? Uh, so for me, I think it was just sort of generic American. I, I don't think uh, for the what most is that part, media like sitcoms? Yeah, so the like I guess, uh, I guess in New Orleans, you, you you most I'd say most of the people I'm around have a pretty neutral american accent but then it is the south so you do get people who have kind of the drawl and Mm -hmm. you know kind of more the stuff you see on tv uh but but so it it was neutral i would say it's interesting when you're in like those kinds of spaces as as a kid or white spaces i mean even in adulthood but there's like this list right so there's like here's a list of all the things that make me different that make me the other right all right i'm fat i'm brown um talk a different way for me in, in some of those white spaces it was like uh what also made me different was that i took a lot of my cues and things from from black culture and hip-hop culture mm-hmm. um yeah and so there's like there's probably like a dozen other things right so there's like all these things that make me different from like, let's just say in like elementary school and stuff, like the rich white kids that I, that I was around. Um, and so I think I and other people like want to minimize that, right? So like certain things there, you can't change, right? I'm brown, I'm fat. I mean, I, you can't change that, but like not not in that sense. Yeah. But, um, but so just crossing like language out of that list like language and accent so like all right for this thing they can't say that i'm different for this right they can't say i'm different with language and accent and stuff like that um so it's just one thing and like efforts of kind of assimilation right and and really the drive for assimilation isn't so much a negative conditioning it's like it's not like Oh, if I don't assimilate, I'm gonna be shunned. Mm-hmm. It's it's if I don't assimilate, I don't get to, I don't get to experience. Right. You know, 
because I mean, people are generally like not. I don't want to say welcoming, but uh, people will generally like leave you alone. And so it's like, yeah, you know, how do I access these spaces? Because I do want to live a normal life and get to experience. I don't necessarily want to be the side character, you know. Oh, is that generation generational? Do you think so? Like you, our parents when they came here, they probably maybe were afraid of being shunned. I mean, Whereas I think for us. I think with our parents, I I mean, maybe I'm simplifying it so much, but like, I don't know if it was so much a social issue as it was so much a survival issue, right? That's true. It's yeah. like, I need to come into this country and build, who gives a shit what they think about me? As long as it doesn't affect my bottom line, you know, I got to raise these kids here. I got to make rent. Uh, but you know, well, but I don't, shunning, especially in the business world, shunning could could involve that though right like what yeah. if everybody decided like oh we're not going to go to the indian owned store we're not yeah. going to patronize this indian business or we're going to go like america first or whatever right yeah i think it kind of it kind of does tie in. i see what you're saying but i think it can tie in i'm not i mean yeah. i think it absolutely does tie in like uh i mean it's a whole thing like when you think about when you think about your parents and well you know the kind of surely there's all sorts of crap that they had to deal with uh that you know we really well we could probably deal with but we're lucky we don't have to or we mm -hmm. don't necessarily have to at that frequency but you know i feel like with the older generation not just south asian immigrant generation but the older generation of like asian immigrants you know other whatever they're I think there's more of a tendency to self-segregate, right? Like how many of our parents really are like really social animals in practice? You know, like I'm not talking about online. I'm talking about like how many of them have really built lives with long lasting social relationships that are outside the extended family. And, mm -hmm. and how big are those networks really of close long-lasting social network relationships, not business relationships, not yeah. acquaintances. I think there's kind of a big contrast, like in my upbringing that way, mm -hmm. um, as compared to, to most other, you know, Indian Americans that I know. And so I think, though I have noticed like my mom and my parents as a whole, probably have like more white and black friends than close friends than like pretty much anybody else that I know, even like my own relatives and stuff. And I think yeah. a lot of that is just like, so I know that you have like a big extended family in yeah. Mississippi or in the Jackson area and stuff like that. Um, but we, we didn't have that like at all. Like we were just kind of here. And so I think they were forced to like, all right, unless we're just going to sit in our house all the time. And th there is an okay Indian sized Indian community here. I don't yeah. think it's as big as Jackson's. I never got the feeling that it was as big as Jackson's actually. Um, it might not be. I don't know. But um, well, plus don't you guys have like four Indian stores in Jackson? Like, Oh, like, like, well, like, like, yeah, uh, something like, or, I mean, there used to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Indian restaurants and stores. There used to be like a, uh, uh, not a decent amount. Y'all definitely. I remember when there used more... to be only two. 
Yeah, but y'all definitely have more than more than we do. Uh, both the restaurants and although now now that we have the new thing of like uh, of the the white guys that go to India for a summer and backpack and come back and open up restaurants with full respect. We're doing this out of love and respect. So I, I don't want to make too much fun of without actually going there and seeing the extent of how ridiculous stuff is. But uh, but we do have a lot of that in New Orleans now. But where 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 sometimes we're I feel like I feel like you and I should just like go to Ireland, learn how they boil potatoes. <laughs> we'll come back. We'll open a spot here in Brooklyn and be like real Irish boiled potatoes. Well, it's, you have to start it off as a food truck. The progression I've seen, we started off as a food truck and then we just crush it and then we get our own. Real, real boiled potatoes, boiled potatoes with right. the skin on and not sanitized because it's uh, and no salt, no spice. And we'll be like, this is just authentic. But but I bet but we shouldn't do Irish though. appropriated anyways. Well, but but I think it would be fair if we did like British straight up. Oh, that'd be funny. like what if we like yeah, what if we what's the natural British culinarily uh, colonized British shit? I don't know. What, what is the natural who, who I guess who's the indigenous, indigenous all population? Who's the indigenous mm-hmm. population, I guess, before like the Anglo Saxons and all? Was there one? I don't know. Oh damn! Maybe the Anglo-Saxons were the best colonizers and were able to wipe out a whole history of indigenous people. What if the whole Great British continent? And I, yeah, like by the way, I mentioned earlier in this interview, our our, our research was better. <laughs> but like, what if there's a whole? What if there's a whole continent of indigenous brown people that just were wiped out and they have no history of it? And then, like, it just became the Great British Empire and the Anglo Saxons and all took over and all. Or maybe, I don't know. No, maybe, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're, I don't, I don't think I'm getting right. I think, yeah. I think I could just watch like Braveheart and that's like, that'll give me the. <laughs> no. I don't know. But our, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. We don't have anything to really be mad at, at the Irish or the Scots about, right? Like we have to. Focus ah, no, our, probably not. Um, no, I mean, I'm not talking about like it's not even a hate thing. It's not even a mad being mad thing. It's just like, it's just like what would sell, you know? Mm-hmm. There's there's an inherent disproportionate disadvantage or a handicap. Where I feel like, it, you know, and maybe it's maybe it'd be different for us in the other side of the world. But like, I feel like white dudes, white women can take a concept, any sort of cultural, ethnic concept mm-hmm. and uh, study it for a little bit or what, or not even have to study it, but just traffic in a confident way that they are experts or can use it and um make a lot of money get a lot of success and there's nothing to hate about that because that's literally uh you know american entrepreneurship ingenuity so like why what are the aspects or the openings in which we can go in and flip it you know i mean i talked to nimesh on that on what episode 14 about like 
you know, what if he opened a school in India that taught potential teachers of yoga, yoga, mm-hmm. because it's not like anybody's going to double check if the yoga is authentic. You know, it could just make up moves and chants. It's not like they're going to check if it's real Sanskrit or what was that movie? Kumari. Kumari. Yeah, yeah, that was good, man. Uh, yeah, the guy literally did that. The only mistake mm-hmm. in that movie was he gave up the game at the end. Like he just Didn't he like feel him. bad, sort of. Or like, yeah, they, he started to feel bad. Like, he started to yeah. feel bad. I think because of how easy it was. Mm. And he was just like, and I'm sure he started to realize, oh my god, there's so many religious conmen that profit in this way. So it's like. You know, we can hate, you can hate, you know, white women for doing, for stealing yoga or whatever. But then also there's like some Baba in India that's uh, manipulating a lot of white women into having sex with him because you see... it's a movement, you know, that, so it's like, where's the balance there? The yoga is their retribution, I guess, uh, for Sai Baba. Did you, uh... So there was a Sai Baba, case. Should I not have said Sai Baba? Was it a different Baba? Huh? It was a different Baba, right? Not Sai Baba. It's probably Sai Baba. Sai Baba was a complicated one because there's two. There's the old Sai Baba, and then there's the one that died a few years ago. Who's the guy that had it had to, that had his dick cut off because he was like that was his apology? Oh, I don't know. I don't know that one at all. It was a whole okay, but. But maybe that's the theory we posit here on season two of Return of the Jewels before we get all our research ready for season three. But season two is that maybe the Babas, the Indian Babas and whatever, are um, they're the counterbalance to appropriation, right? If, if white women can take yoga and make multi-million dollar industries out of it mm. without, without, their needing, without it needing to be like really... Uh, peer-reviewed, authentically checked or whatever, or checked for authenticity or whatever, then maybe the balance of it is just because there's no scrutiny that all these babas manipulate all these white women into doing that kind of thing. Yeah. But then, see, that's complicated because for every, like, one baba that's kind of preying on white women there are like 10 domestic Indian Babas that are preying on Indian people. Yeah. Same, same exact ways. And you see, you ever seen that MSG shit? There's this dude, uh, he was like a, a Punjabi Baba and he like, he like did the, he did the thing where he had his compound and he had like a fake Disney world and shit. It was real, real intense um, on his compound, but he was like, yeah, he was like raping a bunch of women there were a couple of murders and like he buried the people like underneath his compound and shit like that but the thing about him though he was like he like fancied himself like a bollywood star so he would put out these movies and it would be him like all bobbed out like going in this motorcycle like a hero and shit like just put it in youtube man like it was um i don't remember what his name was but his movie was like msg messenger of god and you're just gonna see like a baba with like the thumbnail of the youtube video is gonna be like a top of a baba doing like wheelies on a fucking motorcycle and shit it's like real wild but um 
That was like, I remember. Who are these people? <laughs> but that was a domestic Baba, right? Like all of his money and all of his yeah. he was preying only on. Um, and on I mean, ones. okay, there's like a huge, for as much as in this country, in America, there's like, you know, the millennial generation, whatever, believing in astrology and horoscopes and all that stuff. It's such a predatory and giant industry mm-hmm. in the other side of the world, right? right. Like the um, the Vedic or whatever, astrology mm-hmm. uh, and all of that stuff. And it's like you've got all these people who maybe they have these divine gifts, but they get propped up by every network, every, every like, there's no regulation on the things that they can say and the miracles that they can claim and people just buy into it imagine imagine if there was a whole giant industry of miss cleos right that um every one of your uncles and aunts believed in wholeheartedly yeah and then in in india it gets scarier though because um like politicians, like they will basically like these babas will have like political patrons, right? So like somebody standing for election, they'll go to get the blessings of the baba before the election, right? And they will leave like a twenty lakh donation, right? Well, then, yeah, like, I mean that's and, just like mega churches here. Yeah, and then when poli- the Republican political candidates, and then when there are allegations of like the baba raping somebody or murdering somebody, the politicians will be like, yeah. Let's just keep this quiet. And I mean, they, yeah. yeah, complicated. No, I mean, and, and you know, there's a, there's a corruption everywhere. Uh, we always just have to be, you have to be careful not to fall into the realm of what aboutism, right? When we're talking about corruption in a specific place, to be like, well, what about the corruption here? Because then those kind of arguments don't aren't really arguments. They're cyclical because there's no direct clash. So there's no direct clash there's no like hegelian whatever so what you do is you draw attention to all of it mm-hmm. right so one thing before we talk about the farmers protest and you know this is probably a good segue with the corruption and in government looking the other way and you know the influence of religion and politics and manufactured religion and all of that stuff, not necessarily, you know, whatever, um, private practice of religion. But let's do a segment. So you're aware of this segment. It is called Appropriation or Appreciation. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the screen and I'm going to play a video for you for a minute. Let me do that. I don't like all right 
Okay, so yeah, yeah. So basically, I just wanted to give you a, a sense of that. I didn't. I thought he was going to rap in English, to be honest with you. Um, but that is, I don't know if that's called gully rap, but those are. Uh, well, I mean, you saw what it is. Would you want to mm-hmm. speak on it? Looking at appropriation or appreciation. Appropriation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. was what they're doing. Uh, obviously, it was hip-hop. That was a rap cypher. It was a whole thing. It wasn't in English. But, you know, these guys are uh, rappers in India. This was in mm-hmm. Bombay. And this is, I guess, they're not a battle, but more like just cypher, practice, all that stuff. And um, just like one of those XXL cyphers or whatever that we have here. Um, but is this appropriation? of hip-hop culture or is it appreciation is it its own thing i would probably veer on this side of appreciation i'll tell you why so when you see these guys or completely subjective here but uh when i see these guys like the dude that was rapping like i see like 10 p.m his parents coming in and be like, all right, go to sleep. And he's under the covers with his fucking Reliance Geo cell phone with a two gigabyte plan, like up till five in the morning, finishing all of his fucking data, watching YouTube videos of like the fucking legends of rap, right? And like all of a sudden it's 5 a.m. He hadn't slept. He's out of data for the month, man. And he's just been up all night, like just studying. Um. And, and so I think like dudes like that, like that's out of love and appreciation. Like I think what they're doing for the most part. And like, I think, cause like I was that kid sort of yeah. when I was like a teenager. Right. And, and like, I think when you do, when you're, when you are into something like that, when, when there's that much love there, like you've studied so much, you know, so much about it that you're not going to do things in a disrespectful way. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, let me speak to that. Madhav was the first person I ever met that actually made music, made beats. And he had these wild stories when we were 18-year-olds. Uh, like, we were, in, we're in downtown Jackson, Mississippi, and he would always, like, go to these uh, clubs and sell his beats or, or random, per chance, people buying his beats and stuff. And and so this was always this was wild back in the Casa Morpheus LimeWire days, before a lot of um, uh, computer tools and stuff. So, Mata was on that stuff back then. But sorry, yeah, yeah, continue. It comes from an appreciation for the art form, because I mean the guy wasn't rapping in English; he was speaking very bad mm-hmm. English to introduce himself, which is great. I mean, whatever. But like, uh, he was rapping in his language. And uh, he was hitting the melodies or whatever. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't on beat. I don't know these things. But And then, um, well, another thing with that is that, like, in terms of Indian rap, so, so you have a lot of guys, like, like this guy, I think his name was, well, his real name was Tony Sebastian. I didn't catch the AKA. But um, you have a lot of guys like that. And on the flip side, you have, so, okay, take a guy like that, where he's probably, he's probably watching YouTube videos of, like, Rakim and I don't know, like just legends in the game, man, like 80s, 90s uh, music. And then on the flip side, though, you take some of the, the the sort of more mainstream 
rappers in India. You have like Yo-Yo Honey Singh and Badsha and these cats, right? And they're taking their cues from fucking Pitbull, dude. Like Yo-Yo yeah. Honey Singh is straight up an Indian coked out Pitbull. Like, yeah. So, so if you look at it like that, like one is probably very clear appreciation and one is very clear appropriation uh, looking at those two examples. And, but I do think hip hop is just so complex with it that like, Ultimately, almost if you were not black in hip hop, I think there's there is just some level of appropriation. Yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the day. But but I think there are degrees to it. And what these guys are doing is is much more is just much better than than a lot of the so, other examples out there. Another thing. So kind of and now maybe this is a whole stretch. But let's uh, let me do the transition, then we'll get into the topic. But is this transition a stretch? So, like hip hop historically, I don't obviously I don't have the literature and the research on this. Hip hop in America, the whole thing is like a civil rights movement. Everything it empowers voices. There's a whole you know there's a whole thing like fight the power. All this stuff. It, it's about you know the individual. Uh, self-empowerment the american dream it's its own hip-hop has become its own culture and all of that stuff but you know it's a way to get across uh, heavy messages to the masses about you know like protest all of this stuff breaking down arguments and stuff so you know we look at something like this in india it's blowing up you know this gully rap stuff gully boy all that that's it's becoming big you know sure, sure there's appropriation of the Western culture and that's part of it. But like, that's the thing that's the most commoditized, 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 commoditized and trafficked in thing is the American culture, consumer media culture. And like, yeah, sure, gully rap is gonna become a thing. But then on the other hand, you have things like the rise of fascism or whatever. And you have things like the farmers protests going on in India. So. Farmers' protests, we talked about it right at the beginning of this episode, but like, um, you know, I think it's the biggest protest in history, biggest protest in existence in history. Mm. Uh, and, you know, farmers, all sorts of rural farmers and everyone, and a lot of people are joining them, came into Delhi and, you know, they, they uh, stormed the Red Fort and they're, you know, they met with a lot of like tear gas and all sorts of uh, police brutality. And, uh, you know, the Internet was cut off and all sorts of things. Same things the government did to like Kashmir is doing did to like Delhi, you know, this big metropolitan center, the capital. Right. And all of that. But. There is power in art and self-expression. Right. So Mm. art in India is uh well well self-expression art this is emerging as a form of that so do you think stuff like this if it's appreciative of this thing it's appropriating can it really be used like can it be used can can these kids empower movements through their words and through their appreciation of hip-hop and use of hip-hop Right. I think it could, it could, and I think there are uh, 
a number of really interesting parallels if you look at it, look at things a certain way. So like, all right, we're talking about, so let's go to the, the gully wrap, right? Mm-hmm. So gully wrap right now, it, it's kind of developing, right? Like the, you first started seeing that kind of things, like, like, I don't know what, four or five years ago, and yeah. it, it's sort of getting bigger and bigger and more people in it. Um, so go back to in America when hip hop was here, was in that stage, right? So we go back to basically the 80s as a whole when when that kind of early development was happening in hip hop and think about what was happening here during that time. Yeah, the Reagan era, followed by the last couple of years of uh, Bush Sr. Um, You had a a mysterious uh, illness or disease or pandemic, some would say, with, uh, with the AIDS crisis happening Right, you which White America of... learned about through Tom Hanks. Yeah, you had uh, a look at some other parallels. So you got you had uh, crack era right here, and then go into India in like the last ten or fifteen years. Actually, with the farmer farming communities in in particular, there's been a huge drug problem mm-hmm. um, out there. Like our opioid crisis. Well, right. crack crisis. Well, the our, same. Well, yeah, because yeah. it's like, well, they're um, in the 80s. Yeah. But the, like there, I think it is like straight up opium and, and stuff like that, that the like the younger generations of farmers and stuff are, are getting into and stuff. Yeah. Um, And then you have this kind of like, so Reagan somewhat like, he, he introduced fascism. Trump kind of like perfect, almost like took it to another level. But like going back, like Showtime had a recent thing, a series like The Reagans. And I watched that one night and I was like, holy shit. Like he was like, he entered all the shit that Trump did. Like Reagan kind of did it. Fireside chats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was just so many parallels with that. But but anyway, like going back to the, the point that we were trying to discuss here, um, yeah, it's just it's just crazy. Like so just looking the 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 80s when India or when hip hop developed here and compare that to like now hip hop developing, like a lot of these conditions are very similar. And um and so I think it could I I don't you saw that that White Tiger uh movie, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. White Tiger. Um that's on Netflix about um People are comparing it to uh, Parasite. Um, oh, really? I have not. I didn't. Okay. I won't. I won't comment on White Tiger. Other than, um, wow, what a reliable narrator. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there, <laughs> the, the, the the reason of my narrators. Whenever they are there to be reliable and very hmm. dependable, because that's what makes a good story or that's what makes a good. Okay. That's it. That's it. I'm not, I, I no more. You can talk about it. You could talk about it. Well, just any, uh, any like parallels that one tries to find are just so much more complex when you, when you're doing it with, when you have India on one end, just because of like, class stuff mm-hmm. 
like so like i'm sure a lot of like american people who watched white tiger like i don't know that was probably like their first glance at, at certain class issues like and i feel like right so okay in in like the two weeks that maybe in seventh grade history world history class when people um read about india there's oh there's the caste system and it just like you know so you get like two paragraphs of information about that and some of which are and it's just so much more complex than two paragraphs can ever mm -hmm. like summarize things but then with white tiger i don't know you like probably see it and, and i think you get well so you've gotten like glimpses of it i think with with other like big mainstream movies like slumdog millionaire and stuff i think this might be i don't know this might be like some of the clearest examples of kind of the way things are or can be there yeah I well i mean kind of of also like the um the situation being so grim that it exacerbates an already existing self-defeatist mindset. And then just illuminating that. More things like Parasite shows that, this shows that, you know, different different things. Like this this had the metaphor about the rooster coop or mm. you know, like different things like that, right? With the with the mindset. It's like and then him, him, you know, adding in, adding in those like flares of di or the bros or whatever, talking about subservience and all that, you know. I like I like how well the book and then the movie was. Um, it was set in this period of time, where India was in at the peak of its embrace of capitalism, yeah, and. So you started getting these narratives, like I would get it from relatives and stuff, like essentially not quite to the level, but like almost like, oh, God, there's so few poor people now that there's so few people who are, you know, mistreated and stuff. Dude, everybody's on the rise. Everybody's up this huge middle class, which is true. The middle class did. I uh, swear they were hiding they gold in their slums. Right. <laughs> They're lying to you. But um, but I, I, did, I did enjoy that it was set during that time where so it was like so at that point. Um, India tourism had a big uh, PR push and they, like a slogan was India shining. Right. So like all the, all the at Indian parties and stuff, like every, Oh man, India is really shining right now, man. Like dude, everybody's working. All the poorest people are, are working in call centers and, you know, answering oh, phones for Dell. Everybody's just they're doing so wonderfully now with capitalism and shit. It's like, nope, that's how I feel really. whenever I visit friends in small towns in the South, small rural towns, they're always like, they're always like, man, yo, you haven't been here in five years, but let me tell you, X town is on the up and up, bro. We are on the up and up. <laughs> we got a, we got a new uh, $17 milkshake place in the new <laughs> district that they repurposed. We're on the up and up. Right. But it's like, what do you mean by, it's like, oh, okay. Gentrification. Right. So what does that do? with the population that was there in the district you repurposed mm. you're not really on the up and up you're just shifting <laughs> things around and, right and um yeah no that, that mentality uh object impermanence but it's like it's not object it's subject impermanence because <laughs> it's people 
that's being pushed out of your view. So then you don't even think about them. And uh, that, you know, fuels class division, I'm sure. Yeah. But, you know, you bring awareness. So farmers protest, things like that. You know, you've got a, uh, a populist prime minister and all this stuff who traffics in personal narratives in the cult of personality, sure. Maybe you can debate that, sure, whatever. But there, that's an element of it. And we've got these laws that are passed extreme and written in such a way that they sound like they benefit the individual. Kind of like a Republican administration being like, well, these are tax cuts. But really, they're tax subsidies for people, you know, that can enable government officials to embezzle money or whatever. But what these laws do is they use the fantasy or the the rugged dream, the entrepreneurial dream that individual farmers may have to get rich by saying, these will free you up and eliminate all the ceilings to what you may be able to achieve from your farm. But what it really does is eliminates all the floors, the regulatory floors from which that ensures farmers have, well, maybe not necessarily a sustainable life, but the best attempt at a sustainable life and chance to thrive, right? So just because there's no regulation, now private companies or whatever can hoard uh, goods and they can um, basically use all their tactics, collective bargaining, uh, to uh, undercut farmers, right? They could probably just buy their farms outright and churn them out and, and make their own things, right? They don't. Yeah, it, it opens up the, the field for just complete economic manipulation on mm-hmm. from the part of a big business. Um, so, yeah, okay, from, from one standpoint, all right. 2020, the government said that my wheat was going to be 50 rupees a kilo. That was the, that was a floor, right? Now I'm free to sell it for a hundred rupees a kilo, but I'm going to go to Ambani and he's going to be like, Nope, I'll give you 12 rupees a kilo. Like, like, how does it, it, it brings in all this like complicated shit. I mean, it, It just adds in a lot of room for for abuse. And I mean, the thing is that with a government or with actually not, I don't want to say government, with with the way things are, the way we process information, the way we vote and uh, the way we pick our representation, not necessarily Americans, not necessarily Indians, but the way we do this stuff is we need to have a narrative. We need to have a simple narrative, right? So the narrative with, that allows for market manipulation of all these farmers' work and goods and livelihoods um, and mass aggregation of it and hoarding of it and all this stuff, the mechanisms for that are coupled, can be coupled with this great narrative of free market capitalism being great. Oh, well, this is the free market, right? But really, it's like your own hands now, right? right? Is it a free market if the regulations are in favor of those 
that are the market makers, right? Like mm. essentially these big industries would be market makers. Oh, if I don't have to pay that minimum 50 rupees a kilo for wheat, I can just say that I'm going to pay 12 for wheat. Or you know what? I'm just going to buy all the wheat now and put it in a warehouse. And then uh, I'm just going to control the supply of wheat. I paid 50 rupees a kilo for all the wheat in the country. There's no limit to how much wheat I can buy as a single company. And you know what? I don't have to pay for it. I'm gonna I'm just gonna go to all these farms and be like, I'll pay you three rupees a kilo, but I'll buy all your wheat. And then you know what? These farmers next year, they they don't have to make wheat because I'll have the wheat. I'll control the distribution of all the wheat, you know, my company. So I don't need wheat next year. You guys figure it out next year. But I'll wheat I'll need wheat in three years. I'll probably be running out. So maybe have your shit together in three years. Make me the same amount of wheat. I'll give you four rupees a kilo, maybe. But I think the price will probably be down to like two. Just mm -hmm. FYI. But yeah, I mean, it opens up it opens up the market to this kind of stuff. And obviously, there's, you know, I'm sure there's levels of nefariousness there. It's the biggest protest in existence. They're literally burning effigies of Rihanna, Mina Harris, all this stuff for bringing attention to the issue and it's so mixed in with this tribalist nationalist mindset it's like ask any one of your brown uncles about modi and they'll be like oh my god he used to sell chai on the train platform and now he's prime minister can you believe one day i can be prime minister even though i am a proctologist in alabama but one day He's just like me because he sold chai on a train. The uh, the right wingers are so funny about it though. Like, all right, so when when Rihanna, so when that whole thing happened with Rihanna, Greta Thunberg, and then uh, Mina Harris, so all of a sudden they're like, outsiders should not talk about you know internal national issues like that. Um, and so, but then it's like the way that things are right now. So it's like okay, so outsiders shouldn't talk about it, right? But then, like, if a if a Muslim person talks about it, they're like, "Oh, sh you 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 Pakistanis shouldn't talk about it, right?" That if like, uh, like uh, it's just, but like it's like it's like this whole thing here, like, so who's a real American, right? It's these mm -hmm. patriots that stormed the Capitol, right? And it's same, it's like similar there, like who's who's a real Indian who's who's qualified to to speak on these issues, right? It's a, it's us. Yeah, right? over here, it's just like. It's like, uh, hey, this country is so great. If you don't like it, get out of here. But you know what? I'm going to make the country great again because I don't really like it. <laughs> it's the logic. It's a nice circle. <laughs> yeah, I do. I got to get a get a nice big old uh, Rihanna poster for my wall back here. I think that would look yeah. good in the uh, That would be awesome. No, kudos to Rihanna. Like, and she didn't even, it's not like she was even saying, oh, well, these laws allow for the manipulation of prices and all. Yeah. She was just yeah, like, she didn't no, even why is no one talking about this? This is a giant protest and they're 
brutalizing people. Why is no one talking about this? She <laughs> didn't even say I stand with the farmers. She didn't even like that, right? All she did was <laughs> she probably yeah, she could have been doing it as like, yo, is this like a <laughs> should I like invest in Indian wheat now? <laughs> <laughs> do you uh do you follow uh or or pay attention to um that actress, the Indian actress uh, Kangana Ranat? No, I have no idea. <laughs> she is sort of like Who's she in? Uh, the best movie I or my favorite movie movie of hers was called Queen. Um, she she's been in a bunch. Um, but anyway, she's like a crazy right winger. She's like earlier. Oh, is she the one who called uh, Rihanna a porn singer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. So all all of that, and then she was like, she was like you're just doing all this for money. And then you like type into Google, like Kangana Rana net worth. And it's like 13 million Rihanna net worth, like 1.2 billion. <laughs> it's like, so funny. yeah, just doing it for money. Right. Like, like No, Rihanna, Rihanna speaking on it, uh, is like a liability to her money. <laughs> uh, no, no I, I mentioned it at the beginning of this interview, but, uh, yeah, this comedian, she's really funny. Uh, Zubia, Zuby and I think I um I'll add I'll add that TikTok to this, but it was really funny. She was like, Rihanna, you terrorist porn singer. <laughs> so I've learned of the reference afterwards, but um it was just so like it's so crazy to think about how maybe this is how we close out the episode, right? Is to think about Okay, wait, give me a second here. Let me tie this in. How chains of logic, logical fallacies, right? Logical fallacies catch fire much more than detailed proofs and uh, actual coherent chains of logic. People that are, you know, fascist, populist, whatever tribal ideas, those can catch fire on, catch fire through being trafficked in logical fallacies, right? Saying, hey, you don't like this country, get out of here. Hey, you're not from this country, you can't talk about it, right? These are these are logical fallacies. Oh, well, what about this? Well, what about that? You know, and, or, or, well, these two things are actually just the exact same. These are logical fallacies. Logical fallacies have no place in constructive argumentation other than to be made aware of so as to avoid, right? Logical fallacies are traps. Yet, there's, yet there we see them weaponized mm-hmm. on giant aggregate scales. You work in digital marketing and advertising on the website, on the presentation part of it, right? You have to learn to speak a specific language to speak to people's psyches, people's pensions to buy, right? People are quick to buy logical fallacies. Mm. Human rights can't operate with logical fallacies, right? The only reason peaceful uh, resistance, peaceful nonviolent resistance works is because this is like, look at the bad logic. We are gonna we are gonna sacrifice our livelihood to show the world the bad logic. The problem now is that you can show the world the bad logic, but then 
a very uh, special interest contingent can use their own bad logic to show you that showing bad logic was in itself bad logic, right? And it's it's not about you critically thinking what how does logic work? How does one thing lead to the next? Is this causation or correlation? You don't critically think that. You're just like, this person tell it, is telling me this is good logic. This person is telling me this is bad logic. So I will go ahead because this person has bigger muscles. This person is uh, more attractive. This person looks like they read more books. This person is Ben Shapiro. They have a Harvard, Harvard degree, so they must know, right? They must be using logic. So when I have to, when I have to make a website at work, mm-hmm. I'm handed a Google Drive folder with 20 photos, 30 headlines, and 4,000 words of text. So I get this, and it's like, all right, now go make a website out of it, right? So I'll make the website, right? But the only thing that prospective customers will see are the photos and the headlines. They're not going to read those 4,000 words about mulch or whatever I'm selling that day. And that's what logical fallacies are these headlines, right? They can be condensed into these, into these just short headlines, right? And then you have photos. Those are your logical fallacies in the memes, right? Or they when using memes to, to push these logical fallacies, right? But logical fallacies are debunked through those 4,000 words of text. But you, it's, you have to read that text, right? You have to figure out, like the critical thinking happens in that long bit of text, right? And nobody wants to read that long bit of text. They just headlines and photos. That's all it is. To get to the truth, you have to read the 4,000 words of text. But people don't want to do that. Yeah, what was it like? Uh, lie, lie travels faster than the truth. And so, mm. you know, we are running into that problem. And I've always wondered, and, um, you know, we kind of touched on this point in the conversation yesterday where we're talking about, and I, like, I keep referring to this conversation as if it was like, no, it was a good conversation, right? Like, we, Madhav and I had a good conversation that friends of more than a decade would probably have right we're talking about our purpose and like what is the thing that drives you know the work or or what you know is and you know my thing is like thinking about coded language and reprogramming and and deflating certain logical fallacies that have been built up through repetition deflating them through humor or by or, or really by deflating them through uh, satire if possible satire not necessarily through content but satire in conversations right using a sarcastic response to something or reframing something in such a way that it's like you see the futility of having a having a certain thought or you start to see the potential insensitivity of having a certain thought and so you know, when you think about this confirmate these different mechanisms and tools for bias confirmation and how there's not people are never gonna look at those four thousand words, right? So it's like how do we the people that actually do look at the four thousand words and try to understand the issue, 
how do we reframe the issue so it's comprehensive yet concise enough so as to deflate the bad logical fallacies that rely on constant reassurance, right? The big lie relies on a constant, you know, re-entrenchment of it or, or beating down of it, right? It has to be repeated over and over and over. How do you come up with a certain framing device for each big lie just to put it out there that deflates it. The framing device doesn't need to be re repeated because once because perception is everything, right? If you're looking at a big lie and you are in a cult of personality and you're buying in hook, line, and sinker, somebody can give you an idea that makes you look at that big lie and it deflates your perception of it. And it's like, yo, what? Did I really believe that? Huh. Right. So my aim, and probably with this podcast, and like I said, we're going to have better research next season, but with mm -hmm. this podcast is to try to come up with those different things, well, especially within the realm of like race relations, microaggressions, fucking marginalization, and like colonialism, all this stuff, neocolonialism, the vestigial effects of colonialism, which is what I keep saying, but how do you come up with these different rhetorical devices that can reframe all of this negative coded language, all of these mechanisms that are used to whitewash history? Like, they're all rhetorical devices themselves that rely on constant repetition, that rely on arguments like, hey, you don't know. You don't know as much as I know, so you can't speak on it. You're not from this country, so you can't speak on it. Oh, what are you, you're just Teen Vogue? You're writing articles now? What do you know? Right? You don't have authority. It's like, well, where do you derive this authority? Right? The authority is ultimately derives, the authority ultimately derives from the content, right? The content right. of the argument, the how the, the logical soundness of the argument. A 16-year-old Greta Thunberg or whatever can make an argument about environmental activism the only reason it catches on because it's logically sound and she doesn't need to repeat it she doesn't need to say it but her critics need to constantly repeat it they need to constantly impeach her character uh, yeah i mean I guess that's sort of the challenge, right? Figuring out. Because you've seen, I mean, even just, just going simply, like there are all these like fact checking services and stuff, right? And they 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 take talking points from, from both sides, right? From both political or sides of the political spectrum. They take certain certain statements and talking points and then they research and they figure out are these things true or not? But like, even that's not good enough, apparently, right? No, and then I, you know, uh, I know a lot of people don't like Saturday Night Live, but I watched this week. Uh, I watched a sketch that was on YouTube. They had um, they I thought it was brilliant. They flipped it around. They had a network. It was like it was making fun of Newsmax, which is a very conservative network. Mm -hmm. 
than a network called Sportsmax for only for Jets fans. And right. So it's like they were arguing that uh, all these games that they lost, they actually did win. Oh, God. Okay. Right. And they're using all sorts of wonky logic and different logical fallacies. And it's like just the brilliance of flipping the framing. Right. Let's look at let's look at what the way you guys are approaching these issues in terms of sports. Right. If you were a lifelong fan of you. okay, yeah. You were a big fan of the Saints. Right. Mm -hmm. Football team, the Saints in New Orleans. You're in New Orleans. You know a lot about the Saints. Oh, let's say me coming and not knowing a damn thing is just like, yeah, man, no, the Saints aren't that. No. Are you sure? No, I don't. No, I don't think you know. <laughs> they didn't really win. You know that they're actually all pedophiles and there's a basement with a pedophile ring underneath the Superdome. You know that, right? You know that for sure. Mm. The scores that you see aren't real. That's fake sports. So the fact, like, you would immediately be like, what the fuck? No, there are metrics for looking mm -hmm. at sports. There are, it's like, well, who's making the numbers? Who determines that, right? <laughs> the only, the, the length, the length to which they go with the doubt in sports is like deflated balls in bribed refs. That's it. They don't go beyond that. Right. They're never going to question the agreed upon basis of factual information, the reality, right? They'll never question that. But it's like, I thought it was brilliant how SNL reframed the fake news shit, right? It's like, this is just fake sports. Yeah. Right? And well, so now, yeah. now anytime you run into that's fake news, it's you got, you got a built-in rhetorical device to reframe it. It's like, oh yeah, that's like me saying that the, football game that we both watched last night the score wasn't real that's like me saying that even though your team won my team won yeah <laughs> and it's like uh, oh and it's like oh wait that's very simple to understand huh that's very simple to understand you don't need to repeat it i would have constantly have to repeat well no the saints actually lost that game the Saints lost that game. I would have to repeat it to get everyone to believe it. No, the Saints, you know what? You're an idiot. You don't really know the Saints like I do. Yeah, sure. You were in New Orleans your whole life, but you don't know them like I do. I know who they really are. I know that they didn't lose that game. I know for a fact. You know how I know? Well, I can't tell you because I know in my heart and I have faith. And you know what? There's two sides to every story. You say that they won. Well, I say that they lost. And there's two sides to every story. Right now, I'm doing an impression of Senator Rand Paul right. from Kentucky, whose argument is that there's two sides to every story. So, hey, yeah, you know, this the scores on this football game, there's two sides to every story. Has somebody given... Uh, this is another logical fallacy, huh? Has somebody given him a participation trophy for like the 2020 election? Somebody should do that. No, that's it. Piss it would piss his supporters off so much, right? Because they have that whole narrative like, ah, these liberals. Well, that's the whole there. thing. Like they conveniently drop it. Like I noticed that like around 2017, I you kind of stop hearing the word cuck, other mm. than just like old white comedians still using it. But like you stop hearing that, you stop hearing the word snowflake. Mm. You know, 
now you're hearing calls for unity. By the way, return the jewel store. We got a we got that cool hoodie that says accountability and unity is highlighted because unity is in accountability. Anyways, check it out. Um, but yeah, no, now you're seeing all these calls for unity, and that's also just another bad faith. You know, snowflake always messes me up because the first couple of times I ever heard that term, it was like early to mid nineties in like, it was like, in don't be a menace. And then it, like on the Wayans brothers, like uh, sitcom, they'd be talking about, but in that context, snowflake was just like a white girl. Yeah. So now every time when they're when like, or when that word was like being used a whole bunch, like, ah, oh, you, I think it's from snowflakes like, or whatever. Club, right. Is all it these really? guys, yeah, all these guys, uh, all these guys watch Fight Club. And oh, they have the, it was like one line. DVD. Okay, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I, I remember being like one little like throwaway line kind of from yeah. it, but it's it ended um, up. yeah, like so examples of rhetorical devices, reprogramming coded language like snowflake, safe spaces. Oh, people that storm the Capitol. Why don't you just call them social justice warriors? <laughs> right? Aren't they? Aren't they? Right, you've pejoratively coded that term, and the implication of that term is like, well, the advocacy you have isn't real or authentic. So I'm gonna sarcastically call you uh, call you a warrior to social justice, right? So then it's like, okay, well, the advocacy you guys have isn't really authentic. So I'm going to sarcastically call you a social justice warrior, right? Why can't these terms be used and repurposed? Oh, you guys have this app called Parlor. Well, I guess they don't have it anymore. But <laughs> you guys have this app called Parlor where you're kicking out, or you guys have this subreddit where you kick out anybody. So a uh, safe space. Hmm. Oh, are you being, so you're saying that this is hurting your feelings? Because you think that me disagreeing, so or or okay, like let's say yeah, let's say some someone does get insulted, and they're like, oh, I just just a disagreement, and and, and you don't have to be mean and hurt my. It's like, well, hmm, are you saying that you're too insensitive? You're too sensitive to have a debate. Can you not have a debate? Or, hey, you. Do you really think that the white man has it hard? Are you really sure you're seeing what you're seeing? Are you sure you're not imagining things? <laughs> right? Like, why can't all of this, all of these rhetorical things been repurposed? Right? Why? What was crazy to me, and I promise I'll end this after this. The 2016 election, right? Remember, mm. they hated Hillary Clinton. Right. No one could ever really pinpoint why they hated Hillary Clinton. It was like, oh, well, she's a corporatist or she's a war hawk. She's going to cause war and all of this. But then it really became like, oh, she didn't she didn't campaign in Michigan. Or it was, and then it's like, if really think about what they're saying. What are they saying? What are they saying? She didn't come to my town and call me smart. She didn't court me. She didn't make me feel like the belle of the ball. Why would I vote for her? She didn't make me feel special. Who does she think she is looking so smart? Trying to be smart. Oh, being the most prepared person in the room. No. She didn't court me. 
She didn't tell me I'm smarter than the black people around me. She didn't tell me that. So yeah, she didn't campaign in Michigan. She didn't campaign in Wisconsin. She didn't come tell us that we're smarter than all the black people. So of course we're not going to vote for her. Right? Like, how is that not what those arguments were? Yeah. She didn't court me. Hillary didn't court me. She should have courted me. I need to be courted. Well, that was call me. I'm the bell of the ball. Don't call me deplorable. Oh, that hurts my feelings. You call me deplorable. That hurts my feelings. How dare I? I can't be deplorable. I'm the best person there is. I know everything. If I didn't know everything, I wouldn't beat my wife every day. You know, like, that's who these people are. But, like... Right? Like, isn't it... It's... it's. Why didn't she court me? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. But it just points to, like... How do you even have the conversation? Like, so some of the examples that, that you were giving, like... Like, I don't know. How, how do you even have those conversations? Shame. Really? Shame, humor, shame, mm. humor. What is all of it? What is all of it, right? All the conservative pundits or whatever, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, they're not cool, like Hollywood media, cool rappers are cool, 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 popularity, platform. Oh, they're denying us this platform. That's our civil rights or free speech. No. They want access to spaces that marginalized people have to create for themselves through careful self-segregation as a result of self-defense against these people who are constantly trying to get access. That's it. They want to be viewed as a cool in people, but then they're going to use a horrible fucking logic that you know, is psychopathy that clearly lacks any sort of shred of empathy. They'll use that kind of logic in their regular lives. And they'll probably use it because on internet forums, that's how they get camaraderie. A lot of these dudes in the storm of the Capitol, they're like, well, these are my bowling buddies. These are my buddies for life just because, you know, we can hate uh, another race together. Uh We go to these clan meetings together, you know, we got each other. We got each other on speed dial, like they they build their camaraderie through it because they're shunned because of just being shitty people, you know. And that's how you. That's literally the shame. They feel shame, and then they're gonna argue with you about like how dare you make me feel shame? And it's like, man, how dare you not feel shame? Actually, so with that, um. The owner of like the biggest local grocery store here in New Orleans actually like went to the Capitol and he was like posting pictures on Facebook, like here with all my other patriots um, that day. So he didn't he didn't storm it. He was there. Um, So there's been a boycott like uh, since that happened, pretty much. Uh, Like, I mean, obviously not the whole city or whatever, but, you know, quite a few people are, are no longer shopping there. So like finally, like three weeks out from that, he actually like went on uh, one of the local black uh, radio stations and was like, he wanted to mm. apologize and give his side of the story and, and all of that. But say, so, Hey man, 
you gave your side of the story with the pictures. Like, <laughs> you already did. But, uh, yeah, if I remember, he did, he did kind of a victim that he was like, sort of like, you know, we were just there because it was uh, our president's, you know, last last couple of days. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, those crazies, we don't even know who they were, just started uh, storming the Capitol and being violent and this and that. I don't know. But yeah, it's well, okay. I, I just after they stormed the Capitol, I had to delete all their contacts from my list when I was told that it was not good for business. Yeah, it's just hard, man. I don't, I, I just, I don't have any answers for, for, or any even possible solutions for a lot of. I mean, that's why I guess we weird. do this podcast or whatever for the two people that do listen. We're gonna find you. I'm gonna find you, and I'm gonna send you a hoodie. You two people. Well, you do listen. You've definitely been shouting out those two people a lot during this episode. So I'm yeah. sure they're, they're happy. I'm going to find them. I know the metrics tell me one of you is in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yo, yo, I know that there's so much we could have talked about and everything. Uh, this is already a very long episode, but I do appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm going to have you come and play an active role in this whole project podcast whatever i have going on um but you know we'll work on it uh but i just like this is good and um for you two people that are listening uh you know mother really is one of my first friends so this is um that's why i didn't really want to get into it's like oh who are you? What qualifies you? What do we want to talk? Because it's like, oh, we'll have you on. We'll talk. We'll have a good talk. You know, you're, you're, you do what you do. I do what I do. And, you know, but like the thing is that, uh, you know, take our perspective for how you take it. Uh, obviously, I tell you the limits to which I'm informed or uninformed and Madhav does the same. So, you know, but yeah, dude, I appreciate having you on. Um, you know, I mean, shit. Yeah, dude. Maybe we maybe you can fact check some of the uh, things that we were questionable about and put so it in the, uh, in the description or something. Oh, I think so there, uh, there were two points, uh, two questions. I think one, who was the Emperor Heather? Okay. And then the other one was like, I guess, the evolution of the United Kingdom in terms of. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Braveheart. Those are two. Those are two quick Google. Searches. We're gonna we're gonna find out that Braveheart was, uh, shit. What is that word? Embellished. <laughs> All right, Mother Sixana. Anything you wanna plug? I mean, to the Instagram at Mother Sixana. You can see random film photos, things like that, and and photos of my dog. More importantly, Patty <laughs> dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But uh, no, that's that's it. Okay, dope. Uh, yeah, check out Madhav. Um, yeah, no, he's not really selling anything. He's not really pushing anything. This is just a good conversation about shit uh, that you wouldn't really hear this perspective usually uh, between us because these are the kind of conversations we don't like to to uh, have with people outside of us. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>